0: Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. We hear the Lord say this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him he will sit upon his glorious throne and all the nations will be assembled before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the fo- from the foundation of the world for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. A stranger, and you welcomed me. Naked, and you clothed me ill, and you cared for me. In prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did, you, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and visit you? And the king will say to them in reply, Amen, I say to you, whatever you did for one of these least brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. A stranger, and you gave me no welcome. Naked, and you gave me no clothing. Ill and in prison, you did not care for me. Then they will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or ill or in prison and not minister to your needs? He will answer them, Amen, I say to you, what you did not do for one of these least ones, you did not do for me. And these will go off to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The gospel of the Lord. Here you go. Well, thank you. How's that feel hearing that? What'd you say? Hope you're on the right. Hope you're on the right. Matthew 25, the, the separation of the sheeps and the goats, the judgment of the nations, for it's always been a gospel that has haunted me. Because there really will be a sorting in the end. There really will be a sorting. We are either headed to eternal reward or eternal punishment. And it's not based on Did you pray enough rosaries? It's not based on even... (laughs) Did you you pray enough novenas? Were Were you in the right pew? It was, did the love that was reaching from heaven into your heart move you to love others? I'm going to share a story I don't think I've ever shared before. But it's something that I frequently think about. Oftentimes at night, when I can't fall asleep, I was at my last assignment, and there was a uh, a winter storm that blew in. I was up in Cleveland Heights, and up in that neighborhood, you know, we were pretty close to East Cleveland. Which, if you know anything about East Cleveland, you know it's a really terrible, terrible place to be. Um, one of the poorest municipalities in the country. It's just depression and poverty, like you can't imagine. So. Cleveland Heights is just up the hill from East Cleveland, and we would get people, homeless folks, desperate folks, um, in the churches, in, in our parishes, in the pews, all the time. Um, I found some guy sleeping in my confessional one time. He had be- spent the night there. <laughs> I I, I, did, I, handled it less than honorably. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> so... Um, but there was one night this, uh, a storm blew in, and it was, it was just nasty out. And this guy came to the rectory, homeless man. And he was asking, essentially, if he could spend the night here at the rectory. And I was really fumbling with a way to say, no, we can't really do that. And, I mean, in point of fact, we did have extra rooms, and we did have extra beds, and we did have extra blankets, and we did have extra pillows, and in the midst of my fumbling and trying to figure out a way to, to get this guy somehow, maybe to a homeless shelter, he just said, "You know, no, fine, forget it. And he just left. Like that man's face is seared into my memory. And I think about that. Did I, did I tell Jesus what the residents of Bethlehem said to him? We have, we have no room here for you. There will be a sorting. There will be a sorting. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Who's seen this before? It's Michelangelo's fresco that adorns the wall, the back wall of the Sistine Chapel. It's the last judgment scene. In the center, you've got Christ radiant in his resurrection and his glory. And his right hand is raised, so to his right all the righteous, these are the sheep, who are going up to glory. And to his left are all those who are going down to misery. The thing about the sheep and the goats, its no one is born a sheep and no one's born a goat. Sheep and goats are born sheep and goats, right? It's a parable, it's an analogy. But as we apply it to our humanity... We become sheep and we become goats. Another parable where Jesus talks about at the end of the age, God will send forth his angels and they will gather in the nations like fishermen who would bring a a haul of fish aboard the boat and they sort them into buckets, the good and the bad. And what's interesting, if you look at the Greek, if you look at the Greek, it's not really, it's a bad translation. It's not really the good and the bad. It's the beautiful and the ugly. The beautiful and the ugly. Some of us are thinking, oh, I'm screwed. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good, I'm doing fine, right? I mean, I think about it like this. I mean, when when she was still alive, Mother Teresa was on Time Magazine for most beautiful woman of the year. Uh, Everyone bring into your mind an image of Mother Teresa. Don't strike me down, Lord, right? But objectively, not the most beautiful lady that's ever walked the streets. Right? She could use some creams, is what I'm saying. <laughs> like, she could use some creams, right? Like, her wrinkles have wrinkles, right? Like, it, she was so gnarled. She would, like, she, you know how, like, your fingers get when you hop out of the pool, you're like a living prune, right? Like, her, she, that's her, that was her whole existence, right? After she died and they, she was laid out uh, for people to visit her, they, there was this shot. Uh, I, I forget where I saw this picture, but it was a, a picture of her feet. Her feet were so gnarled and mangled, like horrible to look at kind of a thing. But her feet became that way because anytime time that, that uh, people would donate shoes to the mother house, Mother would always give, like, you know, to the youngest sisters first dibs, basically, on on shoes. You know, find, find the shoes that fit you. And she was the last to get shoes. And the shoes that she got, they never fit her. So her whole life she was cramming her feet into these shoes that didn't fit her. And she spent her whole life living on these streets, serving the poorest of the poor, doing what Jesus did, what he commanded us to do in that gospel. There, were these, there was this uh, team of news reporters from somewhere in, in England who came to film a documentary of Mother Teresa. And um, fascinating detail about their, their experience. They, they, they filmed all this footage. They were with her for a whole week. They filmed her and her sisters, and they took all these interviews, and they just filmed her doing her thing. And when they got back to England to... to, 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 to um, I don't know, produce the film to, to finish the film, it was all unusable. Because all the film was so overexposed, they said it was as if there was this infrared luminescence radiating, radiating out of Mother that rendered all of the film unusable. It was like the, the cameras were picking up a radiant light that was naked to the human eye. It was like so overexposed. In one of the interviews, one of the guys who was talking about this, he said, I asked mother, how do you do this? Why do you do this? And he said, she reached across, she grabbed my hand and she stretched out my fingers and she touched the tip of each of my fingers as she said, you did it to me. That's what she did. That's why she did it. Like, this is, this is reality. Like, we need to be grounded in reality. This is the reality that's coming for all of us. We're going to be sorted into the good or the bad, the beautiful or the ugly, the sheep or the goats, based on how we respond to God's invitation. I shared this at this parish mission, but I said the stunning proposal at the heart of the gospel is that there is a stunning proposal at the heart of the gospel that the God of the universe literally does, truly does, bend the knee like Romeo coming to Juliet saying, will you spend your life with me? And what happens if Juliet says, ah, I'm really busy today. We got a lot of CYO sports. Come back tomorrow. Ask me tomorrow. Romeo's like, "Okay, I love you a lot. I'll come back tomorrow. Juliet, my love, will you spend your life with me? Oh, gosh, there's a thing I got to do. Come back tomorrow. Romeo comes back every day. He comes back every day. He comes back every day. Let's just say in this analogy, Romeo dies. Juliet's not today, come back tomorrow turns into a no. When we apply this to our life, when we say every day, ah, I'm just going to give a half-hearted not today. I'll work on this tomorrow. Eventually, there will come a day when our maybe becomes a no. Our maybe becomes a no. This is very serious stuff. So why St. Paul says, now is the day of salvation. You know why he says that? Because we don't have tomorrow. We have today. We have this. We might not be alive next year. This might be our last Easter. Tomorrow might be my last Mass. I don't know, you don't know. None of us know. Heavy stuff coming at us tonight. Important stuff, good stuff. You can hear a lot. I'm gonna share a lot of uh, a lot of C. S. Lewis quotes. That's not gonna come as a surprise, but I'm gonna share a lot of C. S. Lewis quotes, because I don't know anybody who's written better about heaven or hell or purgatory than C. S. Lewis. And if if I could assign one book for like the church to read, it would probably be C. S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, which has absolutely nothing to do with divorce. Why he titled it that, I'm not sure. But The Great Divorce is this imaginary vision, this imaginary journey of souls who are living in the outskirts of purgatory, getting on this bus, going on this journey to the outskirts of heaven, being persuaded to enter into the joy, enter into the glory. If I can encourage you to read The Great Divorce, I I mean, I can't encourage you enough. These topics, these issues, heaven, hell, and purgatory, all of these things, what happens after we die, all of these questions, these are some of my... My favorite and least favorite questions that the kids in the school ask me all the time because like there's some things I can say for sure and there's many many things that I have no idea right I have no idea they ask things I mean it's like it's who goes to heaven what do what do I get to do when I'm in heaven like what do I got to do in order to get to heaven those were questions that Jesus was asked right what do I have to do in order to be saved will we will we be bored in heaven the answer to that is absolutely not whatever heaven is it's not boring uh, questions like, can someone from hell convert and go to heaven? What about, like, how do the saints in heaven interact or interface with us who are still alive on earth? Can animals go to heaven? Oh, I've dealt with that question. Can animals go to heaven? Dogs, for sure. Cats, definitely not. Um, <laughs> man, no, I, I, my opinion on that question has evolved so interestingly over the years. So I was. this is what I've always said. This was, this was, the, this was the, the approach I used to take on that question. I said, okay, look, the church has never weighed in on this question. Church has never said definitively, yes, animals go to heaven, or no, animals definitely don't go to heaven. Think about this. You've got two saints who are doctors of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure, both of them brilliant scholars and theologians who are contemporaries of each other, writing at the same time. Both are doctors of the church, meaning that their writings are like authoritative, definitive, clarifying, normative for the church. They said opposite things. Thomas Aquinas said, no, animals cannot enjoy the beatific vision. They don't have rational souls. Bonaventure over here is saying, yes, Scripture describes it as a new heavens and a new earth. Well, there were animals in the first heaven or in the first earth. It stands to reason there'll be animals in the next, you know, the new heavens and the new earth. Like, I don't know, right? That's what, that, was, that was the approach I took. And then my family, the first dog we ever had, we ever had he died. His name was Moses. I didn't name him, my dad did. Moses died in 2018, and I quickly evolved on this question. I was like, absolutely, dogs are in heaven. <laughs> Moses is leading all the Jewish dogs into heaven, at least. That's, that's what I know. They're all going into the promised land. So here's what we, is we, very little that, that's, that we can say authoritatively about all of these things, because none of us have died, none of us have gone there. Unless you've had a near-death experience, if you have, maybe you give this talk tonight. I want to hear from you. But... Here's what we do know for sure about what's coming up next. You are going to die. There you have it. You are going to die. You are going to die. There are, there are a finite number of breaths that you will take in your life. Oh, gosh. i just cranking through them. There's a finite n- number of blinks you're going to take. Now we're all suddenly aware of our eyes blinking, right? Finite number of times your heart's going to beat. There's a finite number of hugs you're going to have, a finite number of kisses. There's a finite number of masses. There's a finite number of prayers, a finite number of confessions. It's a finite number. That's an extraordinary thing to consider. It's a finite number. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When? It's a matter of when. I was at this, this gathering. I was, it was a fancy dinner. It was with a bunch of rich donors, and I was at this table, and I had just done uh, a funeral earlier that day, and I was having, you know, they were asking me what I had done that day, and I got, got on the topic of death, obviously, and got on the topic of, of preparations for death, and I, you know, I was, I don't know, I was probably, a newly, I think I was like right around newly ordained, and I asked, I just asked this couple, who were definitely older, Right. <laughs> This wasn't like an unreasonable thing to say. I was like, "Have you guys picked out a funeral? Like, do, you, do you have like a plot yet?" <laughs> Just asking. This, no joke. This was the response that, that that the lady made gave to me. She's like, "I mean, I don't know if it's going to come to that. I don't know if it's like you like. Am I sitting next to an immortal? Like, what are you? Like, what do you mean? Like, I'm working on this like you know transhumanistic and to download my consciousness. I think I'm going to live forever, right?" Like, what? what do you mean you don't know if it's going to come to that? No, it's going to come to that, right? It's going to come to that. This whole, in many ways, this is a tangent, but the whole, like, transhumanism thing, which is different than the transgender thing, but the transhumanism thing, it's all derived from our horror of death. It's people grasping at the resurrection, but under my control. How can I, in my power, give myself eternal life? Well, you can't. <laughs> You're not gonna. You're not gonna. There are, there are only two moments that we are guaranteed in life. and We hear them when we pray the Hail Mary. right? Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. With thee. Blessed are thou among women, blessed are thou in Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners when? Now and the hour of our death. Amen. I was praying a rosary next to the bedside of this woman who was dying. She didn't have any family or any relatives. She was just, just a single woman. And I was praying next to her bedside dying just praying the rosary because i didn't know what else to do i was in the seminary so i couldn't anoint her couldn't do anything like that and uh i'm just going through this rosary i don't know this lady and all of a sudden it like occurred to me i'm listening to her death rattle because death has a sound right and it just like struck me that like very soon for this lady these two moments are going to be the same moment it's coming like the train tracks are converging now and at the hour of her death amen is coming In our modern world, we just, we live so far away from death. We push death so far out of our consciousness. This this is what I think COVID did to the world. Like all of a sudden this threat of my mortality that I could die. Like all of a sudden the whole world became aware that the fact that we are mortal. Threw the church and the world into this panic. Absolute terror. Absolute terror. What the... COVID pandemic did, among many things, is it unmasked pun intended, sort of intended it unmasked, I think the church's failure to actually proclaim the gospel it unmasked our complete failure for generations to instill in people, like, listen I know that death is scary and death can be very awful and very painful but we have the answer to it there's a solution to it. His name is Jesus, right? There There is a person who entered death and left it out on the other side. He passed through it like a door. And you know what? You can be attached to this man. You can have his life, his humanity, the power that animated him, that brought him out of the grave, you can have that in you. You can eat resurrected life, the kind of life that death finds detestable, so that, yes, death will come and still find you, And it will swallow you. But because you are attached to Jesus, because you taste like Jesus, because your whole life you were consuming Jesus and letting Jesus into your humanity, you taste like Jesus. And death remembers when it ate Jesus, it spat Jesus out. Like Jonah spat out of the whale. Jesus spat out of death. Death can't hold Christians. (laughs) It can't hold Christians. We had the answer to the pandemic. His name was Jesus. His name was Jesus. So we live so far away from death in our modern consciousness. Like, Wadsworth is a different um, community. Like, I remember in my last parish, where I would, I, you know, I would get to this point, I would say, like, you know, we don't eat, we don't hunt or kill our own food. Remember the first year I said this, people were like, "Yeah, I do." <laughs> <laughs> oh, where am I? Medina County, right? Very different, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, I slaughtered some chickens this morning. Like, wow, okay, I don't, right? Like, I thought chickens grew in packages at the grocery (laughs) store. But by and large, most Americans, most moderns, we don't hunt and kill our food. We don't see the life ebb away from the prey that we've just slaughtered, right? We don't do that. We don't do that. And we don't see death up close and personal. Like, we have for millennia, right? Death was in your home. There were no nursing homes or hospice care centers. There was was also no painkillers, right? There was no narcotics or morphine. People knew death up close and personal, up close and personal. People don't typically die in our homes anymore. They just don't. And there's good and there's bad about that, but it's just the case. Again, but for most of human history, we were surrounded by death. Our, sort, our modern obsession, like the, 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 the modern cosmetic plastic surgery multi-billion dollar industry, it is all buoyed up by our fear of and abhorrence of death. Every wrinkle, every gray hair, every sagging part of our bodies, every part of it, it's a reminder that I am headed to the grave I'm headed to the grave. It's why we hate aging. You know, in the modern progressive utopian myth that is the culture, like, the, the, I mean, just look at Canada, right? The solution to suffering is no longer compassion for the suffering, compassion for the dying. Like, we hate death so much that we just kill people. euthanasia, right? We hate death so much, I'm just going to kill you to solve the problem. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. Un- unless we reckon with the fact of our mortality, we will never live rightly. Unless we reckon with the fact of our mortality, we will never live rightly. The the medievals, especially the Benedictines and the, the Carthusians, these Old religious communities, they had this spirituality, Benedictines especially, they would greet each other with the phrase, frater, momento mori, brother, remember your death. Remember your death. In the rule of St. Benedict, every year, I don't know if this is still within the rule, I I imagine it is, but, and I'm pretty sure it's the rule of St. Benedict. Someone on YouTube will probably correct it if it's not, (laughs) but anyway, the, um, The monks were instructed every year, at least once a year, to lie on their beds and imagine themselves on their deathbed. In other words, or like imagine yourself like lying in your coffin. Put yourself in the place of death because you're headed there. If you ever get a chance to go to Rome, there is a bizarre church in Rome run by the Capuchins called the Capuchin Bone Church. Have you guys been there? Has anyone been to the Capuchin Bone Church besides Robin Ruth? Of course you have, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> the Capuchin Bone Church is exactly what it sounds like. It is decorated, constructed floor to ceiling, every element of it, out of human skeletal remains. The walls covered in skulls, the altar is built out of skulls, everything is made out of human skeletal remains. It was m- largely plague victims who died, the bodies were collected, their bones you know, preserved and placed... In this church, you walk into the Capuchin Bone Church, and there are these three hooded skeletal skeletons right there in front of you, holding signs, which is so creepy. One of the signs reads, "Come siamo adesso, quindi eravamo un tempo," as you are now, so we once were. And then the next one says, "As we are now." so you also shall be. Whew. Right? The caption Bone Church. We have to reckon with our death, not to be macabre, but to have the perspective that we need. It's interesting. I just was struck by this because of some conversations in the last few months, just talking to people. Um, And I've often thought this, you know, like, I mean, I often think about my martyrdom and how much of an unheroic, uninspiring martyr I will be. Just screaming obscenities and, you know, no one's going to make a holy card out of that scene. I'm just telling you that. It hurts so much. (laughs) Just cut my head off. Right? That people say things, you know, like, like a person dies, I don't know, they, they, or that they didn't suffer long, right? That they, it, was, it was a quick death, or they, at least they didn't suffer, or that their suffering is no longer there, right? That, like, it wasn't prolonged. What's interesting is that if you look at the history of Christianity, never before modern times did people pray for a quick death. People actually prayed for, God, spare me from a quick death. Not because they're like, oh, I can take it, but because they knew that their death was the ultimate human act. It was the the ultimate, and the the grace was, I want to be able to prepare well for this. There was a manual that was put out in the the 16th century. It was called the Ars Moriendi, means the art of dying. Beautiful chapters that outline like how loved ones should be encouraging and the, the five temptations that, that, that the dying are, are, are tempted into. And like people, they saw death like there was an art to this. Like I want to do this well. I want to enter into this well. I saw a documentary, I don't know, a few years ago. Um, it was, I think it was an HBO documentary about Tiger Woods. Greatest golfer of all time, right? The goat. Tiger Woods, and it was it was mostly interviews with um, like his caddies and you know childhood friends, but also like old film of his father Earl Woods, who was he had his issues. But Earl Woods was explaining how he taught Tiger to play golf. Like when I get up to the tee box, my thought is I I want to hit this ball as far as humanly possible. I like I just like Mach three just. i'm i'm driving the green on a par five is what my mind is thinking right that's why i'm not a great golfer right because it's like earl woods trained tiger to to play golf by thinking first okay here is where the pin is on the green where do you need the golf ball to be on the green to make it in one putt got that in your mind okay Now then where do you need the ball to be in your approach shot or your chip shot to get it onto the green to make that one putt? Got that? Okay, then back it up one more stroke. Where do you need your fairway shot to be to make that chip to make that putt? Then where do you need your drive to land to make that approach shot, to make that chip, to make that putt? He taught him to play the game backwards, which is why he's the greatest golfer. He plays the game backwards. He's thinking, where do I need the ball to be to make one putt. That's how we need to think about our lives, to live with the end in mind, that final moment in mind, because we're going to hear one of two things. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy, which is what everybody wants to hear. Or we'll hear the other thing. Depart from me, you accursed. Into the fire prepared for you. Did you catch it in the the gospel reading? The fire prepared for you for whom? For whom? The The devil and his angels. The fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't prepared, first and foremost, for damned human souls. He didn't intend that for us. Enter into a place that you were never meant to go, is what he's saying to the accursed. So death doesn't make life meaningless. We're not nihilists, right? Nihilists look at death and say, what's the point? What's the point? I don't know if you've ever met any nihilists, but they tend to be living contradictions because they still get out of bed and they still do stuff, right? Same thing on his head, right? Death doesn't make life meaningless. It makes life incredibly meaningful. And again, upon our death, what you became in this life is what you will be for eternity. Your will is fixed. There's no repentance. There's no conversion after death. There's, the envelope is sealed. The results are in. It's sealed. You are for eternity what you choose to become in this life. It, like, which reveals the unbelievable gift and burden and responsibility of freedom. Like We are the only creatures who have freedom, well, in addition to the angels. But we are the only earthly creatures that have freedom. Like, we go to bed and we wake up in the morning and we make choices. All day long we're making choices. Here's your first C.S. Lewis quote. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Pause, let me just pause there. C.S. Lewis is not a heretic. He's not saying that we become gods and goddesses. What he's saying is that we become partakers of the divine life, right? Human mortals, you and me, we, by God's grace, become divinized. The Eastern Rite Church, they call it theosis. In the Latin Church, the Western Church, we call it divinization, like God's life filling us up more and more and more and more and more and more and more, right? Right? St. Paul saying it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? This divinization. We become partakers of the divine nature. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. I love that line. There are no ordinary people. I'm not sure which female saint it was. It was either Teresa of Avila, Catherine of Siena. It was one of those. They were given this, like, vision of a saint. A saint came to visit them. Let's just say it was Catherine of Siena. Catherine falls to the ground in adoration and worship because she is utterly convinced she is standing before the beauty of the Trinity. She can't comprehend how this thing that's before her could be anything but the Godhead. And God then speaks to her and says, arise, my daughter, what are you doing? She says, I am worshiping you. And the Lord says, you are bowing before the lowest saint in heaven. There are no ordinary people. In the end, there are only two sorts of people. C.S. Lewis says, Those to whom God says, Thy will be done. And those who say to God, Thy will be done. Which makes the national anthem of hell Frank Sinatra's I did it my way. It's true. (laughs) Not saying he's, you know, the devil, but I'm just saying. (laughs) Everyone in hell is singing, I did it my way. I did it my way. It's just the echo of Lucifer's non-servium. I will not serve. I will do it my way. Whew. Heavy, heavy, heavy. More C.S. Lewis. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different. Again, what's the part of you that chooses? It's your heart. Right? Your heart, you, your will, right? It's turning you, your heart, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your whole life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is to joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. It's supposed to be or the other. One state or the other. Like, all day long, all day long, You're never off. You never get to just like put your eternal journey in neutral. You're either moving towards him or you're moving away from him. St. Augustine, his whole theology is built around this idea. He calls it aversio or conversio. Aversion or conversion. We are either all day long in our choices converting, moving closer, choosing faith, hope, love, choosing sacrificial love, choosing saintliness, or we're choosing selfishness, we're choosing things that are away from God, and you keep choosing things that are away from God, you become what you choose. You become a hellish creature. You begin to live hell now, because all of these things, madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, loneliness, that's the end result of a life choosing everything that is not God. You probably know people who are living their hell already now. You're probably thinking of a few names right now. And you also probably know people who are already beginning to live and taste their heaven now. The inevitability of death, the looming reality of hell and heaven, it makes life serious. Our choices matter. All right, so speaking of all these things, we're going to start first talking about heaven. Sound good? Yes? Good, okay. Let's talk about heaven first, which is the goal of our lives, right? It's the goal of our lives. But here's the thing. Man, oh, man, do we have some really ridiculous and really pathetic and really horrible misunderstandings and images of heaven? I remember being a little boy, sitting on an airplane, descending through the clouds and thinking like, this is this heaven, right? <laughs> I, mean, that, I mean, it is gorgeous. Don't get me wrong. It is beautiful. I mean, how many of us, maybe the first time you're on a plane like me, like, you think, you look out here and you're thinking, like, where, where are the angels, where are the saints? Here's the thing. Heaven is not cloud town. Anybody see the movie, Pixar movie, Inside Out? Okay, a few of us. Okay, cloud town. This is what a lot of people, even mature, sophisticated adults, kind of carry this, like, I don't know, childish, immature image of heaven. Right? I love this. What's the big idea? You better fix that wall or else you're in big trouble. Hey, uh, you're saying your husband was blown away by an elephant. Was he with anyone? Yes, and there she is. Hey, come back here. Forget it, Jake. It's Cloud Town. <laughs> I love that so much. Forget it, kid. It's Cloud Town. All right, uh, Peter Craft. Philosopher at Boston College, I love this. No one longs for fluffy clouds and sexless cherubs. None of us long for fluffy clouds and sexless cherubs. And why are they always so sexless? I don't know. It's so weird. All the, the fat baby angels. Anyway. <laughs> but everyone longs for heaven. No one longs for any of the heavens that we have ever imagined. But everyone longs for something no eye has seen, no ear has heard, something that is has not entered into the imagination of man, something God has prepared for those who love him. So what is, what is this heaven thing? What is this hope that we have? What is this, this destination? What is this? What is this? I'm going to show you this picture. This really cool dude right here. This is my grandpa. My grandpa, uh, his name is Dick Schultz. All the grandkids, we called him Bop, B-O-P. Because my oldest cousin, Brad, right, because it's always the oldest cousin who gets to decide what your grandparents are called, right? Brad couldn't say grandpa, right? So he said Boppa. So this is Bop and we had Bop and Gam, right? So Bop, Bop died uh, in January of 2020, like right before the pandemic started. He was a genius. He was like, I'm out of here, right? (laughs) This guy was absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing, Um, Him and my grandma, they lived in Hudson, right? So the same time I grew up and for the first 10 years of my life, they were two streets away. So I saw them all the time. And then when we moved to another part of town, we still saw them all the time, right? So this guy, I mean, he was amazing. He was was a high school teacher. He was student council, advisor, tennis coach. Um, Just, I mean, the sweetest, sweetest man. Like, if, if sweet and low could be turned into a human person, that was my grandpa, right? He was the kind of guy who would scour the newspaper and clip out you know, articles or stories about you know, the like, kids and their athletic achievements. And he would mail them to the kid and just say, I saw you in the newspaper. You were amazing. Right? He grew tomatoes so that he could walk the neighborhood and just drop tomatoes off in his neighbor's mailboxes. Right? Like this guy, he was, he was the best. He was absolutely the best. In October of 2019, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He'd been, he'd been losing weight. And my dad had been noticing all this. And We were starting to get concerned, and so we finally convinced him to go see the doctor. And I remember the phone call? My dad called me and said, "It's it's bad news. It's like it's it's cancer." I said, "What kind?" He said, "It's pancreatic cancer," which, I mean, that's a death sentence, basically, right? Pancreatic cancer. And it, there was there was never any point of conversation about like, "Oh, well, let's try and fight this." He's like, "I'm 90 years old. <laughs> it's like, I'm good. I'm good." He lived at he stayed at home, so my grandmother died of a heart attack in, in 2006. Um, so he was um, a widower for a number of years. He lived at home by himself for a number of years, or I'm sorry, for about a month. And then it was uh, at some point in November, right around Thanksgiving, about a week or two before Thanksgiving, um, that he just kind of flipped the switch and was like, yeah, I'll, I'll move in with you, my parents, Rick and Michelle, I'll move in with you, Rick and Michelle. And then he spent the last day was, days of his life at my parents' house. He never went to nursing home, never went to a hospice center. He, he received some hospice care right at the very end, but um, he wasn't connected to any machines, no IVs, nothing. It was just him lying in a bed. There was an oxygen machine. I mean, he had a nasal cannula giving him some oxygen, but eventually, he, like, that, that was off. It was just, it was my grandpa lying in, a, in the guest bed at my parents' house, Dying. And it was so hard to watch. It was so hard to watch. Like the priest, the priest can pray prayers over, over the dying when you anoint them. I mean, I probably anointed him, I don't know, like 10 times before he died. I was like, I just got to make sure. <laughs> And uh, one of the prayers that the priest can pray, the reason why you want a priest at your bedside when you're dying is because a priest can pray this prayer called the apostolic pardon, which comes from the authority of the Holy See, from the Holy Father, in which you're, you're, you're imparting this, this total forgiveness of all temporal punishment due to sin. It's, it's a complete wiping clean of the record. And it's a, I don't want to say it's a get-out-of-jail-free card, but it's a, it's a go-straight-up-to-heaven card. Like, and I prayed that prayer over him. Like, I knew where he was going. I knew that when he breathed his last, I knew that he was going up to heaven. He was, he was, he was an incredibly holy man. And like, before he died too, I, I I just got to sit with him because I knew like, I'm the priest's grandson. I'm like, I'm going to do your funeral. (laughs) And I rarely get the opportunity as a priest to sit and talk with, or at least even be friends with the people who I bury, most often it's like I just meet with the family and I prepare a homily, right? Rarely do I get the opportunity to know the person, let alone have it be my grandpa. And I got to sit with him and I just asked him, I said, how are you doing with all this? Like the fact that you're dying. I said, are you scared? He said, I, I get a little scared every once in a while. He said, but I keep remembering something my mom said to me when he goes, when I was really little, that he would get scared, like big thunderstorms, things like that. I guess he was really prone to, like, a, you know, fright. And she said she, to, he to, he said, she told me, Dick, when you're scared, just say, Jesus, take me by the hand. He's like, I just keep saying that. He said, death is a turnstile. It's like, every one of us, we all take our turn. We'll all go through it. I knew where he was going. I knew he lived an incredible life. I knew he was ready. I knew he had been suffering tremendously. And I, I didn't want him to be dead. I didn't want him to be gone. Like, I wanted more. But at the same time, like, I didn't want him to keep living what he was living. Like, I wanted him to be fully alive. I wanted that. Like everyone you know, every one of us and everyone you know, like, are gonna die. And yet we don't want them to be dead. We know that all of us are going to die. Everyone I love is gonna die. And yet, I don't want that to be the case. Why do we want love and life to last forever? It's because we are made for a love that never ends, for a life that never ends. We have in us a desire that doesn't correspond to anything in this world. Right? C.S. Lewis, his great argument from desire, he says, if I find in myself a desire that doesn't correspond to anything in this world, then that probably means that I'm most likely made for another world. He's like, I, I find in myself a desire for food. Guess what? Or for I have in myself a desire called hunger. Guess what? There's food. I have a desire in me called thirst. Guess what? There's drink. I have a desire for companionship. There's friends. But I have in me a desire for life and love that doesn't end. Where is that in this world? It doesn't exist in this world. Saying perhaps you were made for a world where it is Forever. Like, it's, it's a signature in our hearts. Remember back at the beginning of the year, the very first session that I taught about the longing for the infinite, right? I talked about, I shared my heart. I talked about, like, my love-hate relationship with these trees, right? I love and I hate spring. I, I love, I, like, I love the beauty that comes up. And I, like, and I hate the fact that it goes. I want a beauty that is secure. I want a beauty that is secure. And, like, all of these moments that I share with you, like, I'm, I'm, my dad and I are taking the, these kiddos and their sibling out, out to dinner tomorrow night on my day off. And, um, like, it's just bizarre to me that they're texting my dad, setting up the, you know, the time and where we're going to go. I'm like, you were five months old five minutes ago. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> it's, it, you, want the, you want this kind, I want something like this to last forever. I want these beautiful moments, these beautiful encounters, these beautiful experiences. I want this love and this. I want this to last forever. I want it to last forever. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Pope Benedict, I shared this quote at the beginning of the year, man's aching desire for the infinite It is like a signature imprinted with fire in his soul and in his body for the creator himself. Like. Your longing for forever, that is the Lord's signature upon you. When an artist finishes masterwork, he, he signs it, right? I did this. Your desire for forever, that is God's signature upon you. The heart's thirst and the body's longing cannot be eliminated. It cannot be eliminated. I want to walk through this quote from Pope Benedict from, I think, one of the greatest encyclicals he wrote called Space Salvi*, Saved in Hope, right? Listen to this. I think that in this very precise and permanently valid way, Augustine, St. Augustine, is describing man's essential situation. The situation that gives rise to all his contradictions and hopes. What is he talking about? When St. Augustine says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. We're made for you. We're made for forever. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That's what he's talking about. In some way, we want life itself, true life, untouched, even by death. Is that not what we want? That is what we want. Yet at the same time, we do not know the thing towards which we feel driven. We cannot stop reaching out for it. And yet we know that all we can experience or accomplish is not what we yearn for. Like all the beautiful things, all those beautiful moments I just showed you, the phrasing I kept using was, it's something like this. That sunrise. It's, I-, I want a beauty like that, but forever. Times infinity. This incredible meal. I want something like this in me for forever. Like there's this unknown thing that I can't help but yearn for, is what he's saying. This unknown thing is the true hope which drives us, and at the same time, the fact that it is unknown is the cause of all forms of despair and also of all efforts, whether positive or destructive, directed towards worldly authenticity and human authenticity. This is critical. The term eternal life. So the Bible uses this phrase. Jesus uses this phrase, eternal life. The term eternal life is intended to give a name to this known unknown. So we talk about Jesus gives us eternal life. What does that mean? (laughs) It's, it's, It's trying to name this known unknown mystery that I long for. Inevitably, it is an inadequate term that creates confusion. Eternal, in fact, suggests to us the idea of something interminable. And this frightens us. Life makes us think of the life that we know and love and do not want to lose, even though very often it brings more toil than satisfaction, so that while on the one hand we desire it, on the other hand we do not want it. So this phrase eternal life is making us think like, it's like this but forever? I don't think I want that. I mean, I've got some good days. I had an awesome steak the other night. That was awesome. But... I've also had some boiled chicken breast, and that was not good, right? (laughs) We want it, but we don't want it. To imagine ourselves outside the temporality that imprisons us, this time world that we're in, and in some way to sense that eternity is not an unending succession of days in the calendar. Pause. Don't read ahead. He's saying, when we talk about eternal life, he's not saying it's an unending succession succession of days on a calendar. This comes, then that comes, then that comes. Go to bed, wake up, go to bed, wake up. He's like, that's not what we mean by eternal. But something more like the supreme moment of satisfaction in which totality embraces us and we embrace totality. This we can only attempt to understand. It would be like Plunging into the ocean of infinite love, a moment in which time, the before and after, no longer exists. We can only attempt to grasp the idea that such a moment is life in the full sense. Like, the before and after. I have this moment with my goddaughter. I'm hugging her. I'm holding her. It's so good. And then I have to give her back. There's before and then there's after. Imagine when the before and after no longer exists. A plunging ever anew into the vastness of being in which we are simply overwhelmed with joy. This is how Jesus expresses it in St. John's Gospel. I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. We must think along these lines if we want to understand the object of Christian hope, to understand what it is that our faith, our being with Christ, leads us to expect. I mean, this sounds pretty good to me. A lot better than fat baby angels playing harps for all eternity. Who wants, nobody wants that. Everybody wants this. Every atheist, every nihilist, every communist, every godless person wants this, even though they don't know that they want it. Every person wants this. Every person wants this. One of the craziest things we have to, that we have to own about heaven is this. That it's a bodily experience. It's going to be a bodily experience. i got to move a little bit faster. It's going to be a bodily experience. In the creed we say, I believe in the resurrection of the, whose body? Not just Jesus' body, our body. Our bodies will be different in their resurrected and glorified form. Listen, this is St. Paul in 1 Corinthians. The body is sown corruptible, it is raised incorruptible. What does incorruptible mean? It's not a trick question. Not able to be corrupted, right? Not able to be corrupted. It is sown dishonorable, it is raised glorious. It is sown weak, it is raised powerful. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual one. The Catechism says something astounding about this aspect of our faith in in paragraph 996. Listen to this. From the beginning... Christian faith in the resurrection has met with incomprehension and opposition. On no point does the Christian faith encounter more opposition than on the resurrection of the body. It is very commonly accepted that the life of the human person continues in a spiritual fashion after death, but how can we believe that this body, so clearly mortal, could rise to everlasting life? St. Paul goes to the Areopagus in Greece, in Athens. And he begins preaching about the resurrection of the body. And people scoff at him and say, this is ridiculous. Clearly this is impossible. Clearly this is ridiculous. Friends, we are not Platonic dualists. Plato, Platonism says that when you die, you finally shuffle off this mortal coil, your body goes here, and your soul finally can escape from this prison of your body and float up into this disembodied spirit world. That's not Christianity. That's not Catholicism. That's not Catholicism. That's Platonism. Manichaeism, dualism. That's not Catholicism. So what then is heaven? What is this? It is being taken into the very heart and life of God. Recall this other paragraph that we've looked at earlier this year. God's very being is love. God has revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has destined us to share in that exchange. It's being taken into the dance. It's taken into the dance. Heaven is not the room where God lives. It's not like you're like, there's Jimmy, there's Grandma, there's Grandpa, and there goes God walking down the sidewalk. That's not what heaven is. Heaven is union with God. It's union with God. We've looked at this icon before, but remember, again, this space in the front, it's the Trinity's way of saying, "Come in. come into the dance. Come into the infinite joy. That's what it is. And again, the great sign that reveals this call to communion with God. It's our very embodiment, our masculinity. Marriage from the beginning was a sign of the eternal marriage of the Lamb, Christ and the church and the communion of saints. The book of Revelation, it's not talking about the apocalypse and the end of the world. It's talking about what is happening in heaven. It's a marriage feast. It's a marriage feast. And the great temptation that we're seeing in our world, and we've always seen it, but the great temptation is turning the icon of sexuality into an idol. It's only ever meant to point us to the stars, to point us to the stars. All right, I'm going to pause. We're going to go on a little bit of break because I've been fire hydrating at you for a little bit here. Let's go on a little bit of a break, and then we'll talk about purgatory and hell. All right, let's talk about purgatory. Scripture, Scripture is very clear about something that... Revelation 21:27. we hear this. Nothing unclean shall enter heaven. Nothing unclean shall enter heaven. There's another way of saying nothing impure, nothing perfected shall enter heaven. If heaven is perfection, if heaven, heaven is the infinite bliss and perfection of the Trinity, nothing unclean or impure or imperfect can enter into that space. So we got a little bit of a problem, right? Because I dare say most of us, very few of us, very few people... When we die, we'll be perfectly sanctified, perfectly made holy, perfectly perfected at the time of our death. So what happens? What happens to us? Well, we all go to hell. (laughs) I'm just kidding. No. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right, Catechism says this. All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Okay. Purgatory is a very confusing thing for a lot of people. People have a lot of false notions about it. Thinking that purgatory is like the waiting room, so to speak, where you, like, you get called, like you're all waiting in this room. Like... Um, Joyce McGillicuddy, oh, 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 oh. hell, you know, like, shoot, I was waiting here so long. No, there's only, one st- st- there's only one set of stairs in purgatory, and they're going up, if you will, okay? If you've made it to purgatory, you're going eventually to heaven. You're going eventually to heaven. Scripture says this, and this is very important. This is a scriptural doctrine. This is not just some made-up thing by the church. It is based in Scripture. It is based in Scripture. And whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. What does that imply? That there are some sins that can be forgiven in the age to come. This comes right from the lips of our Lord. Right from the lips of our Lord. That there are some sins that can be forgiven for people who have already died in the age to come. Um, Oh, I need a Bible again. Will, Bible. <laughs> Give it up for Will's Bible and Will. <laughs> I should have done that in a different order. Will and then Will's Bible, First Corinthians. Um. All right, this is Paul in First Corinthians. Um. All right. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, the work of each will come to light for the day. For the day will disclose it. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. Hear what he's saying. That like we, well, your Bible that our lives become this sort of construction. Like we're building our lives, right, so to speak, out of all these different materials is the analogy he's using. And in this afterlife that he's describing, all of our works get tested by fire. What will be burned away and what will remain? right? That's the image of purgatory in some ways. It's this purification. Think of... um, the image of, uh, that Paul uses of, of, a, of, of a refiner refining silver in the fire, right? This is fascinating. The way that, that um, ancient forgers used to um, determine when the, the silver alloy was purified, right? So they have the, I mean, it's all mixed with other metals in there, right? So they have it in the heart of the, the forge, heated up tons of degrees, right? Really, really hot. Tons of degrees, that's a great phrase. <laughs> that's tons of degrees hot. <laughs> oh, we're losing it. Okay. So the, the, the guy has the, the, the metal alloy in the forge, and he's staring at it, looking at it. And the, the saying was that the moment that the, for, that, the, that the refiner could see his own reflection on the surface of the metal, that's when he knew it was time to pull it out. That's a pretty cool image, right? The moment that he could see his reflection in what was being purified, then he was like, ah, you're good. Right? You, you're time to go. Another image I, I love for pur- purgatory, it comes from like my own childhood. Purgatory is like my parents, the mudroom in my parents' house, right? So there was like, you coming through the garage, and the space where we threw all our shoes and coats and you know, book bags and all those things, it was the mudroom. You guys know mudrooms, right? Yeah, you with me? OK. OK. Mudroom, all right? Here's an actual image of, that's me. Just kidding. (laughs) Oh, man. All right, listen to this. Again, C.S. Lewis. Our souls demand purgatory, don't they? Would it not break the heart of God, break the heart if God said to us, it is true, my child, that your breath smells? and your rags drip with mud and slime. But we are charitable here, and no one will upbraid you for these things, nor draw away from you. Enter into the joy. Should we not reply with submission, sir? And if there is no objection, I'd rather be cleaned first. It may hurt, you know, God would say, even so, sir." How good is that? Right? Like before I enter into the like no no I I want I want to be purified to enter into this. I want to I want to share with you um, a, a beautiful passage from one of my favorite uh, Narnia books again C.S. Lewis. <coughs> <coughs> oh my gosh. <coughs> Popcorn kernel came flying out of my lungs. <coughs> I'm dying. <coughs> Okay, I'm okay. C.S. Lewis is the Dawn Treader. The Dawn Treader. In the Dawn Treader, we meet this character. His name is Eustace Clarence Scrub. And at the very beginning of the book, C.S. Lewis <coughs> adds this. <coughs> Can you give me my water? <coughs> Do you know the Heimlich? Ah, <coughs> <coughs> uh, Okay. At the very beginning of the book, after he introduces Eustace Clarence Scrub, he says, and he almost deserved it, that name. So good. Okay, so who is Eustace? He's this selfish, nasty boy. He comes across this treasure in Narnia. He puts on this bracelet, and he falls asleep. And when he awakes, he finds that he's been turned into a dragon, this horrible revelation of his inner character. He's now fully revealed as what his inner character is, as this dragon. And he comes to this moment of being sick of being a dragon. Because he can't talk like a boy. He's growling like a dragon. He's feasting on goats, and he just hates being a dragon. He wants to be a boy again. He wants to rid himself of his dragonness, right? His dragonness. All right, listen to this. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things, and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That... That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In in a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty, It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going down to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's right, said I. It only means that I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one. And went down into the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the others, and stepped out of it. But as as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, the lion is Aslan. Jesus, spoiler alert, (laughs) the lion said, then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just laid down flat on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peeled off. You you know, if you've ever picked the scab off of a sore place. It hurts like the bilio, but it's fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt, and there it was. Lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. He did somehow or other in new clothes, the same I've got on now, as a matter of fact, and then suddenly I was back here. It's the undragoning of Eustace Scrub. Purgatory is where we get undragoned. It's in some ways painful. It's in many ways painful. A very wise spiritual director said to me one time when I was wrestling with some stuff that I just didn't want to look at, that I didn't want to deal with, he said, you know, you better deal with it now because I promise you it will hurt less now than it will in purgatory. It's a a painful purification. It's a being wrenched back into what we were meant to be. Parts of us become dragons. And we have to be turned back into the boys and girls that we were meant to be, right? Purgatory is where we get undragoned. I love that image. All right, let's turn to hell (laughs) to close out our time. And I did only want to leave just a few moments because I we don't need to dwell too terribly much here. When Jesus was asked the question, will many be saved? He said, wide is the way that leads to salvation, or wide is the way that leads to, <coughs> narrow is the way that leads to salvation, and few are there who find it. Wide is the road that leads to damnation, and many there are that find it. You know, we know basically what we know about hell almost exclusively because, of the, because from the lips of Jesus. It's Jesus who spoke about hell more than anybody. Jesus spoke about hell. Wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many there are that find it, but narrow is the gate that leads to salvation, and those who find it are few. Why is the gate narrow? It's not like it's narrow to to, you know do crowd control. It's not narrow because God intentionally wants few people in heaven. It's narrow because it's specific. It's narrow in the way that, like, a lock is narrow. It's, it's meant to fit a specific shape. Like, unless you f- are in the shape of Christ crucified, unless you're in the shape of Jesus, unless you look like him and sound like him and bear the wounds of love in your body like he did by extending yourself and sacrificing, all these things, you won't fit you won't fit the door is narrow because it's in the shape of Jesus <laughs> that's why it's narrow our modern minds have inverted this our modern minds have said oh everybody goes to heaven everybody's going and if any i mean if anybody's in hell it's i mean they you you got to be like a hitler to go to hell That's just not what Jesus says. That's just not what Jesus says. There's been heretical views throughout history. One that's become kind of prevalent again. It's called apocatastasis, or known as universalism. This idea that in the end, all will be saved. In the end, God's going to empty out hell and bring everyone to heaven. That's an idea that's been condemned again and again and again and again by the church. Because it's not taught by Jesus. It's not revealed in the scriptures. So is hell packed to the gills? I don't know. I hope not. Like, I have the hope that God in his mercy does save somehow even the most wayward, the most lost. That who knows what an infinite God who stands out of space and time can do. Like, like... There is an infinite amount of time between the time that the bullet leaves the barrel of the gun and it enters the guy's head. God who's outside of time can do a whole lot of stuff in that short time. And what he does there, I don't know. I hope to God somehow the offer of mercy is given and the offer of mercy is accepted. I hope people aren't in hell. But from the words of Jesus, it certainly doesn't sound like that. It doesn't sound like that. when he was asked that question, will many be saved, he didn't give them a number. <laughs> he didn't say, about, you know, 42%. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. He, he just turned it back on them and said, you strive to enter. You make the effort to enter. Apply your whole self to this. You strive to enter. And here's, here's how numbers work for Jesus too. When he says things like, Many, many find the road that leads to destruction. Jesus is also one who says, uh, a shepherd had a hundred sheep and one goes astray. And leaving the 99, he goes in search of the one, puts it on his shoulders to bring it back. Because for Jesus, one lost sheep was one too many lost. So when we talk about many and few, he just has a different criterion than we do. Why do we believe in hell? Hell follows logically from two other doctrines, the doctrine of heaven and the doctrine of free will, that if there is a heaven, then there can also be a not heaven. If heaven is communion with the Trinity and the communion of saints, entering into joy, then there can be the opposite of that, which is exclusion, loneliness, right? Heaven and free will. If there is free will, we can act on it, and choose and choose God, aversio, or we can... A baby. Sorry. <laughs> hey, no, that's great. You go for it. Is it your baby? No? Okay. <laughs> well, he's just sitting here. <laughs> if there is heaven, there's also not heaven. And if there is free will, we can, we can act on it or we can abuse it. We can choose God or we can choose against it. Like those who deny hell must also deny either the existence of heaven or the, and, and or the existence of free will. Like, it's the, if people are in hell, it's because they chose throughout the course of their lifetime, they chose hell, right? We become a hellish creature or a heavenly creature throughout the course of our lifetime. This is what the Catechism says about what hell is. And just try and, I don't know, let your heart actually hear this. It's the state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed. Like, I remember watching Lion King when it came out, you know, 95, 94, somewhere there. See it in the theater, you know. And the uh, the scene where Scar is doing his whole, like, his, like, Hitler routine, basically, is what he's doing. And the vents and the geysers are shooting up, and it's like, like, oh my gosh, that's, that looks like hell. You picture like all these cackling demons coming together. It's self-exclusion. It is isolating loneliness. Dante, in his image of hell, hell was not a fiery environment for Dante. Hell was a icy, cold environment. Because at the pit of hell, trapped up to his chest in ice was the fallen angel lucifer stuck in ice because that's what sin does to us sin constricts us it constricts our freedom it makes us less alive and less human right so lucifer in the pit of hell is buried into his chest in ice and he's got his gigantic broken bat wings that are just flapping in the air constantly and with like total futility and it's creating this cold atmosphere And he's got these three faces, Dante says, and he's just weeping out of these three faces, just this miserable wretch in the bottom of hell. Again, C.S. Lewis, hell is not eternal life with torture, but something far worse, eternal dying. What goes to hell is not a man, but remains. Hell is really possible for you and me. And there's no conversion, there's no escape, there's no end, there's no... Satisfaction. There's no hope. There's no joy. There's community. There's nothing. It was Hans Urs von Balthasar. I'm going to end with this. Hans Urs von Balthasar, who again, struggled a lot in kindergarten with a name like that. <laughs> <laughs> Hans Urs von Balthasar. I would like the applesauce. <laughs> Hans Urs von Balthasar said once that There's only one kind of fire in the afterlife. It's the fire of God's love. The same fire that delights the saints and fills them with glory in heaven. It's the same fire that purifies the souls in purgatory. It's the same fire that torments the souls of the damned. It's just a difference of the mode of receptivity. Do you want it or not? Like, I remember... I remember, you know, being maybe eight years old and I got in trouble for something. I was sent to my room and I was just righteously pissed at my parents is what I was. I just was mad at them and I wanted to be mad at them and I wanted to be mad and I didn't want to come down for dinner. And they called me down, like I finished my punishment. They called me down, like, you're done. You can come down. And I just wanted to stay in it. And so like they came up to my room, my mom, my dad, and my brother, and they like came into my room and they were like, come on, we love you. And they're like, and I'm just like, you know, just turn into the beast. And then they started tickling me. (laughs) Yeah. Talk about the fire, the flames of hell tormenting the damned. Right? I was just raging angry, right? Raging angry. That's hell. I refuse to enter into the joy. It's the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. He refuses to enter the feast. He refuses to enter.